So we're in First Thessalonians today, okay. Um, and uh, I've kind of titled this sermon, Enduring in Hope for the Mission of God. Now, I've been going through church history uh, for the second time, actually, so it's kind of an embarrassing story a little bit. Um, I took church history before one time when I was at a different seminary and uh, actually didn't do so well uh, because 30% of the grade was reading the textbook and I never bought the textbook. So, you know, <laughs> so I was like, oh, you know, it was one of those hard lessons that, you know, it was like one week till the ending. I was like, what, you have to read the textbook? And I was like, at that point, it was too late. I was in Hawaii. I was not getting the textbook. I was like, all right, let this be a lesson learned for me. Uh, I was taking it a little too chill with seminary. Um, but because of that, and the second class I could, took didn't transfer over to the seminary that I end up, that I'm currently at. So it turns out I had to t retake church history one and two, um, and which is I'm currently doing over the summer. And you know, I was at first just very annoyed by that. I was like, why do I have to take this again? You know, this professor's kind of hard too. He's asking all these like very specific questions on his test. And I'm like, why, you know, why Lord, why is this, you know, necessary? And, um, but I've actually kind of, you know, admitting, grudging, begrudgingly looking back at it, you know, now I'm seeing God's grace in it. Um, because the first time I took church history, I didn't have a good experience, um, not because of just how I did academically, um, but because it was, a, it was a really hard struggle in faith for me. Um, going through church history, I don't know if you guys have ever gone through it, was not at all encouraging the first time. Um, because I was reading about things like the Crusades, I was like reading about like the medieval church, and like the corruption, and the people killing each other over various religious sects in Christianity. And it was just like disheartening, right? It was just like, man, where is God is God even real <laughs> when I read about this stuff sometimes? You know, and, and I just, I really struggled with it, and I, you know, I didn't have such a great time. So maybe that's why God had me take it again. Um, and so this time kind of going through, I, I think it's been, it's been better. Um, and, you know, I've been more mentally prepared. I, you know, I knew about some of the dark points in the time, the history of the church. Um, you know, I was more prepared just the reality that, you know, humans are very broken, and Christians are no exception. Um, Christians are sometimes the most broken people, um, you know, and so I was kind of prepared more for this mentality. But this time I think I saw more, um, more positive things. I think I saw more of the impact of how ordinary faithful men and women uh, made on the church and how in every era, even in some of the darkest times in church history, um, there were, God was always moving. Um, and I was always seeing kind of, you know, there's these indications, there's these few people here and there you know, who, you know, who stood out, and, you know, they're just faithful men and women, um, you know, who just, um, who left powerful testimonies, um, who, who wrote, who were, you know, who served the poor, who, you know, were missionaries, um, who were martyrs, who, you know, who exemplified this life of Christ, um, and I'm thankful for them, <laughs> thankful for them, because I think they, they kept the church um, on pace, um, and they kept the church's witness alive, and that kind of led me to think about sort of you know, the legacy that we will leave as Grace Life Church. I know that's kind of a big kind of thought to have, um, but it led me to think about kind of what is the witness that we as an ordinary church, you know, Grace Life Church um, in Catonsville, Maryland, right? You know, what legacy, what witness are we leaving to the world around us? You know, are we kind of contributing in this positive way or, you know, in, in some ways, you know, are there ways in which perhaps you know, we need to look at our witness and see the, the impact that kind of we are making to those around us. 
Um, I think today in this world, unfortunately, it's still a mixed legacy, right? Um, uh, a lot of us have experiences, um, negative experiences in the church. A lot of us know people, you know, who've struggled in the church. Like my mom was one of them, you know, who's just like been there, done that, went to church, don't like it, <laughs> you know. Um, and and, it, and it's, it can be frustrating for us to just think through like, man, like, just the incalculable weight, you know, of our witness um, and the fact that God does use it, you know, for positive to, to bring people to Christ or in some ways to, to deeply cause those around us to not want to have anything to do with him. Uh, but today we're going to look at an encouraging model. Um, we're going to look through First Thessalonians, and this is one of those churches that is just a really encouraging model um, for what I, lo- I think looks like to be a powerful, positive witness. Um, so we're going to look at their witness, and we're going to look at um, their power for witness, like where they, you know, where their witness came from, where their strength for being able to witness. We're going to look at how they witnessed, you know, what the act of their witness was, and we're going to look at their effect of their witness. And my hope is by the end of today that we would leave with a sense of awe and joy of the privilege that God has given us to be his witnesses, um, and that it would give us fresh motivation to imitate this church, this First Thessalonians church, um, in lives of love and faith and hope as we see that they were living out. So that's kind of my hope for us today. Um, start with just the power for witness, um, leaning on the awesome power of God and bringing salvation, leaning on the awesome power of God and bringing salvation. Um, First Thessalonians kind of, Paul starts out by writing and saying, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God, Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts uh, by giving thanks, you know, he's just saying, every time I think about you, I'm constantly mentioning you, I'm listening to you, I'm just overflowing with joy and with thankfulness, right? And why is that the case? Well, let me take you through a little bit of the backgrounds of the Thessalonian church. Um, they're quite an incredible church, so this background is pretty exciting. So um, it began with um, Paul in Acts 16, he talks about a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, Macedonia is like northern Greece um, today, was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So what happened at this point was Paul had mostly been ministering in what's called Asia at the time, which is Turkey, right? And so among cities like Ephesus and, you know, all these cities that you've kind of read of. Um, and he was, you know, see, having a hard time. He was extreme persecution at some points. You know, the last kind of few weeks or months before, you know, before this happened, he was kind of, there were a lot of closed doors everywhere that he was going. Um, and so he was saying, yeah, like, the Spirit was not just allowing me to be able to share. And at one point, you know, a vision appeared to Paul, you know, and here the man of Macedonia um, from northern Greek, Greece basically says, come over and help us. And because of that, he goes over to Greece, and, you know, that's his first foray in some ways into Europe. Um, at that point, the gospel had never made inroads into Europe. The first church that he started there was the Church of Philippi, um, which you guys can read about in Philippians. And the second church that he started was the Church of Thessalon- uh, Thessalonians in Thessalonica. Um, so it's quite an interesting story. So he goes to Thessalonica, he's there, and he's only there for a total of three weeks. Um, it's an incredible story. Like thinking about Paul just being there, you know, we know that because he just preached on I think two to three Sundays um, in the synagogue. And he was there for three weeks before the persecution got so bad that he was forced to leave. Um, 
but the effect of his ministry in three weeks is absolutely incredible. Um, and it's just something that I just, I'm like, I don't know if any of us can replicate that today. <laughs> just go sober for three weeks and start a church plant and leave and have it actually do well, um, which is basically what happened here. And I think all of that kind of shows that like this was a work of God that was happening. This wasn't just because Paul had read the latest book on church planting strategy. You know, it wasn't because he just, you know, he was just really good at preaching, you know. Um, this was a clear work of God that was happening, that God was moving as we saw, that God had called Paul in the first place, you know, using this vision, and he was already at work, and Paul just came, and when he came and he preached, it was just like a fire that just set, and it was just like, boom, you know, revival was happening there. We see that, you know, that they received the faith and that there was genuine repentance, um, even amidst persecution. Um, and later on, we're going to see this in First Thessalonians. It's, he says, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And this wasn't, no, just, you know, people just raised their hands in some revival and they went back and they just kept doing the same thing. No, there was transformation in their life. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is, these are Greeks we're talking about. They're not even Jewish, Right? And they turned from their historic faith and they came to believe in Jesus Christ. What an incredible and interesting situation. So it's characterized by transformative faith and almost immediate persecution. Because as Paul was there, as is alluded to before, um, he had to leave so quickly because the persecution there was equally also intense. And so he talks about that point. Um, many of the Jews did come to Christ, but some of the Jews who were um, against this message of Christianity it says here, they, this is an axe, they attack the house of Jason. Um, I wonder if this is where the origin of the name Jason is. <laughs> but they attack the house of Jason. Here's this early kind of convert who's this early leader of the church, seeking to bring them out to the car. They drag Jason, some of the brothers before the cities and authorities. They're beating them and, and doing all these things. And, you know, they barely escape. So the situation is kind of bad <laughs> already, right? And so you see, like, transformative faith and immediate turmoil going on. And Paul, Paul himself has to leave in three weeks because it's just getting so bad. But again, a work of God that people are believing and turning to God in the midst of such heavy rejection and persecution. And finally, we see that they continue on to persevere. This wasn't just, you know, some short-term kind of thing where some people, you know, catch on to some fad and three weeks later after being persecuted, they're just like, you know what, this was not worth it. You know, by the time in which Paul was writing this letter to First Thessalonians, we're going to see this later on in the letter. He's actually very concerned about how they're doing because he's worried. He's like, oh, they spent three weeks there. Like, I hope those guys are doing okay. You know, I didn't get that much time to strengthen them and encourage them and do all this stuff. You know, but it's like, you know, he, did, he, did, you know, he was worried about what them, and then he's, he comes back and they hear a report and he's like, wow, not only are they doing okay, not only they're still Christian, but they're blooming. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're just growing in faith and they are, you know, just, they're doing well. And so clearly all of this was a powerful example of God's work. And, and Paul, that's why Paul is giving thanks, because he's like, man, this is, this is not just something I could do. You know, this is clearly something, an indication that God is at work. And because of that, Paul actually encourages the Thessalonians to lean on this power of God, to remember that what's going on in their lives, what's, what's bringing about this revival is not just because of them, um, because it's God himself who's working in their midst. In 1 Thessalonians, later on, he continues on to say, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you 
not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. What an awesome line. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. And so basically Paul is trying to make an argument here. Um, he's, he's referring to predestination, which normally in our context we do not think of as a, negative, as, as a positive thing. You know, I think a lot of times when we Christians talk predestination, we're like, oh, we got to talk about that hard topic. <laughs> we got to talk about that topic that nobody wants to talk about. You know, then it's all this... It's all confusing, and it's all difficult, and you have to think about this, and it seems unfair or hard. You know, that's never the way in which Paul used the idea of predestination. Whenever he talked about the idea of being chosen by God, you know, God's you know, chosen before the foundation of the world and all these things, he always meant it in a way that would give confidence and security to them. So what he's trying to do here is he's trying to encourage the Thessalonians. He's like, I know you guys are struggling. I know it's hard. But this is how you can have confidence that you're going to make it through. Um, and the reason why is because the way in which the gospel came to you was so clearly a work of God that we can be assured that you guys belong to God. That you guys, this, this is not your doing. It's not just you chose. Like God worked in your life. And because of that, we know he's going to bring it to completion. We know that you're loved by him. We know that he's chosen you. So take heart in that, Right? Like, cling to that and know that God's going to carry you through because of the incredible way in which he's already been working in your life. So that's how he uses that, to, to assure them and to give them strength when they're actually in a really hard place. I think sometimes when I think about sort of my journey as Christian, and, you know, sort of coming into college not being Christian and then becoming Christian— and then deciding to go be a pastor, which I never thought I would do, never wanted to do back in high school, you know. And I think about all that, and I think there was one time I was just thinking through all that, and I think I felt like, you know, a Holy Spirit in some ways saying, like, do you think that was you? Like, do you think it's just because you're just like, man, you just gave it all, you know, you just, is, do you think it was just your choices and everything? No, like, I was the one who, even before you knew that you were going to do all this, you know, I'd moved in your life, I'd brought you to the place where you were going to grow and where you're going to encounter God. You know, I, from the beginning to the end, you know, like, I was the one who did all that. Um, and that, that assured me that I was like, okay, this is just because, this is just me making some wild decisions. <laughs> you know, this is God's hand in my life um, when I look back into the ways in which God has worked in the past. We see that this is a common kind of way in which Paul sees his ministry. I think one of the ways why Paul is so successful in his ministry and why he's able to just run so hard for so long um, without burning out, which sounds so crazy, is because I think Paul, more than anything, has this huge, has this huge view of God and has this full place of surrender where it's like, God, you're the one who's at work, and I'm just the one who's just following you and just doing the things that you tell me to do. 1 Corinthians, I could pull from a number of places where Paul mentions this, but, you know, here in, he's talking to a different church. He says, what then is Apollos? He's another preacher. What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave a growth. And so wherever you go, Paul, you know, Paul just has this incredible perspective that, like, the only way this is going to happen is if God works, and I know he's going to work. So therefore, I have the strength to continue to endure and to continue to go. I want to kind of share some modern kind of examples of that, um, of, these, of people who've leaned on the power of God and on themselves. And I would submit to you that any person who's really done anything for the Lord um, has come from this power strength. Um, they've come from this place where 
they leaned on the power of God and not on themselves. Um, I want to just list some, some people, you know, I, you can select from a bunch of people, you know. Uh, one person is Hudson Taylor um, on the left there. Um, he was the founder of the China, China Inland Missions in the 1800s. Um, and he's famous for this quote, right? He says, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. And so what gave him the courage um, and a bunch of other British ministries to go to, at that time, a very close country, China, right? Um, and like, I mean, Asian culture is very different from white European, from British culture, right? How are you going to do this? You know, like, what's the logistical plan? This is what amazes me about all the missionaries in that They had no, they just went there and they just figured it out. And they, they struggled and it was hard and they made mistakes and they, and they learned, you know, and they weren't perfect, you know. But they had this incredible confidence that God is the one who wants us to go. And if this is his mission, then it's not going to fail. And if this is what he wants to do, then it can't fail because it's God. Another person I've been wanting to introduce this person to you guys for a long time is this woman named Maria Fearing, I, I think she also has this incredible story, and I've just been wanting to share this for a while, but I never had the opportunity to. Maria Fearing is just another person, just in the, also in the 1800s. She was actually born a slave. Um, she became Christian through her masters, which was, which was quite common at the time. When, when the Civil War was over, um, she learned to read and write at the age of 33, which is, first of all, not an easy thing to do when you're 33, and also she's a woman, she's black, she's you know, it's not going to be easy to read. You know, when emancipation was over, she, uh, when the Civil War was over, she, um, she learned to read and write. And not only that, but she decided that she wanted to pursue missions. Um, well, I don't know if you know what the 1800s were like, but, you know, it's not a very open field for black missionaries and for women missionaries. So she's like, you know, it's difficult, right? And so when a missionary appealed for her, um, appealed for volunteers to go to the Congo, she did volunteer to go. No one funded her at first, so she had to self-fund. She sold her house. She did all these things. And then she went off into the Congo, um, where you know, only after two years of being a full-time ministry, they, she finally was recognized, and you know, she started to be funded. And she worked there for 20 years. Uh, she learned the language. She assisted in the translation of the Bible. Um, she started a girls' school, where she was known as the mother from far away. Um, she worked over 20 years there until she was finally, like, you know, they, they, like, they had to, like, drag her back to retire because they're like, your, your health is in trouble. And, you know, so at the age of 78, she comes back and she, you know, spends the rest of her life just teaching Sunday school, you know, a faithful woman of God, you know, at home. And, and here's this example of another person who's just significant barriers, right? Significant, you know, she can be forgiven. Just be like, you know what? Maybe the Great Commission is not for me, you know, or at least international missions is not for me. And here's this woman who was so convicted that this was God's calling. This was God's call for anybody, you know, and so she was like, well, can't fail if God's behind it. I think that's what unites these incredibly faithful men and women of God. How do they go into impossible situations with impossible mission? They have a great faith in God um, that brings salvation, just like Paul, um, just like the Thessalonians. And so, sum it all up, they, the power of their witness came from leaning on and trusting in this God who could not fail. But not only were they called to trust and to lean, uh, but they were called to act as well. And witness, of course, is always in action. And here, maybe, maybe I'm using the word witness in a way that is a little different from you, because you know, maybe you think about the word witness in terms of just sharing the gospel, you know, you know, going up to some stranger and just trying to tell them about Jesus or whatever. That wasn't the primary sense in which they were witnessing. Surely they were probably talking about Jesus, but the primary way in which they were witnessing actually was enduring in hope 
faith and love amidst their persecution, their difficulties, and amidst just in the context of everyday life. We see here in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 3, he says, Give thanks to you, we've read that part, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we also read this part, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we have among you, and how you turn to God from the idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so here we see the Thessalonians enduring persecution in this very difficult time. And, and what, what was really key to their active witness was this idea that they were waiting for a son from heaven. When I was kind of reading and studying this passage, I feel like this was the key to their perspective that allowed them to have such an incredible witness. Was they, they had this very strong sense that Christ was going to come back soon, right? It's waiting for a son from heaven. They had this sense that Christ is going to come back anytime, and that informed how they saw their lives in this world. Well, I think sometimes you and I will struggle with that when we hear about that. Uh, because, yes, I do believe that the Thessalonians thought that God was going to come back. Christ was going to come back in their lifetime. And he obviously did not. And a lot of generations of Christians since then have thought Christ will come back in their lifetime. And it's been 2,000 years, right? Um, and so I've sometimes at, at times struggled with that, you know, even just when people are saying, Christ is going to come back in our lifetime. I'm like, well, everyone else has thought that like 2,000 years so far. And hasn't happened yet, you know. Um, but I want to I challenge us on one thing, is that what's important about Christ coming back isn't the when, but it's the fact that he is. It's not about the timing. I think sometimes we think it's about the timing. And so if he's not going to come back in this timing, then we just think it doesn't matter. No, 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 no. It's this perspective and it's the idea that Christ is going to come back at some point. I don't even know if it's our lifetime or at some future point that gives a temporal sense to this life here that helps us to frame what this life is all about. Let me give an analogy. Um, before Dre and I bought a house, we bought a house recently. We live in apartments. Um, you know, we rented um, for about 10 years. We're in Baltimore City. And we never bought anything, any nice furniture, right? Because why would you? Like, you're renting. Do you know what I mean? Like, we never, like, decorated really, like, permanently, right? Because when you're renting from an apartment, you have a clearly temporal sense of, like, why you're there. I mean, you're not going to invest that much in your apartment because you're going to be gone maybe the next year. Do you know what I mean? And so, you know, the furniture that you get is maybe Ikea furniture. <laughs> it's, it's probably pretty simple stuff. You know, you're not getting stuff that will last. You don't even know if you're going to be in Baltimore. You know what I mean? But this is kind of the perspective, I would say, that these Thessalonians and all these people who share this perspective had. You know, they saw this whole life in some ways as like a renting. <laughs> you know, where they're like, it's, I, either Christ is going to come back where in 60, 70 years, I'm going to be gone, you know? And so what's the point of investing and building these big houses and, and acquiring wealth and money and, and doing all these things? What's, what's the point? I mean, surely I need some of that you know, to survive. I, I, you know, buy some Ikea furniture, right? You know, I need the temporals. They're not unimportant. But that's not where my aim is. That's not, I know because Christ is going to pack. He's coming and he's bringing a new kingdom in which the things in this life, many of them, which will not matter anymore. And because I know that Christ's kingdom is coming, that's going to inform and change my whole perspective, how I live my life, the decisions I choose to make. And that was, I would think, the perspective of the first Thessalonians, which has allowed them to endure a lot of temporal suffering, right? Which is, you know, I don't want to minimize it, which was pretty intense, you know, but that allowed them to endure. 
And we see that it resulted in a lifestyle of faith, love, and hope. I love this verse because I think this captures the the essence of what we as Christians are called to do in this world so well. It says, he refers to your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. I think these are maybe three things to memorize as, you know, this is maybe what God has called us to do. I'm going to start with the bottom one, steadfastness of hope. That's kind of what I talked about, that they are anchored by the sense that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to vindicate everything. His kingdom is coming. Let's live for that. And they and, and then the idea of steadfastness of hope was this idea that it needed to be maintained, right? Um, we all lose sight of the eternal things. We all go on mission trips and we're like, I'm going to live for Jesus. You know, and we come back and we're like, never mind. <laughs> um, but like, you know, we, we all struggle with maintaining a, a, a focus on the eternal. That's just normal. That's just human beings. And that's why the Thessalonians met weekly. You know, they, they met to encourage they met to do the Lord's Supper. They met to do all these things because it anchored them in the hope that they have. And that's why we do the things we do. That's why we get up here and, you know, we do this Sunday thing. Some of you guys have pretty long drives you have to get here. It's because this is an act of reminding ourselves and re-encouraging and reigniting that hope in the eternal. Second, we see that they worked faith, right? Their, their work of faith. And I love that because there's that sense that their faith was driving them to live out their faith in real and tangible ways. And I would submit that at that point, um, just going to church for them was a work of faith because they could get dragged out and beaten because they were, you know, being persecuted, right? Um, going out to the marketplaces and saying, I was a Christian, you know, um, potentially sharing with somebody was a work of faith, right? So the idea of work of faith wasn't this dramatic sense. It was just that they held true to their faith in the context of where they were, and that required work. It wasn't easy. It wasn't natural, right? I think for us, even though some of us were not under persecution in the same ways the Thessalonians are, I would submit that still living out an active lifestyle of faith is going to take some work, right? It's not natural to spend some time with the Lord in the morning, right? It's not natural to, to give generously. It's not natural to you know, spend all this time, we are encouraging each other. It's not natural, you know, it takes work, you know, to pray for our, our, our friends who don't know, our family members who don't know about Jesus, to put in the effort. It takes work, right? It's the work of faith. And finally, this, this idea of labor of love, which I love so much. Labor of love, because let's be honest, love oftentimes feels like labor, right? Um, you know, I don't know who said that love was a choice, I think it's partially an emotion, but I think definitely it's a choice too. Um, I think it's definitely a choice and a, a, an act of your will to be like, it's not easy, but I'm going to love you. And we see that in the Thess Thessalonians, that they were called to love sacrificially their enemies, the very people who were persecuting them. They were called to labor in loving them and being kind to them. That's not natural stuff that happens, right? And so this was the witness of the first, Thess first Thessalonians. And we see that it resulted in a witness that cannot be refuted. I mean, this is why there is so much power in their lives. Um, because they were living out these things so boldly and so confidently, even amidst persecution, that, you know, their enemies had no answer to them. <laughs> you know, they, they could persecute them, but it was obvious to everybody in the world that these were, like, incredibly godly and lovely, uh, loving people. And it resulted in a witness that cannot be refuted. I think that's, I believe today um, that the greatest thing lacking in our witness is not really even sharing the gospel and evangelism. I think that's maybe part of it. 
But I think the foremost, the main issue with our lack of witness is a lack of godly, powerful lives for which there is no irrefutable, there is irrefutable evidence of God's presence and power. Let me say that again. I, I don't think it's because, you know, we don't know how to share the gospel or stuff, but I think it's the fact that so many of us struggle to live these godly, powerful lives in which there is irrefutable evidence of God's presence and power. And so many of us, we strive to be like the world and to fit into the world to the extent in which we're not really any different. And if we're not really any different, nobody asks. Nobody's interested because you're just the same. You just go to church on Sunday. That's the only difference you have. And I feel like there's so much to be called in my life that I'm just feeling and I'm hoping for us as well to be men and women of God who just, who live with such a sense of God's presence and power. Where, non, where people who don't know Christ look at us and they're like, something is clearly different about the way that person is living. Without it, I think evangelism always feels hypocritical. It always feels hypocritical because when we're telling people about it, they're just like, well, why should I believe you? Why should I believe in Jesus when your life looks no different from mine? It resulted in a witness that cannot be refuted. Second, we see that where they learned and where they got this witness was from imitating Paul himself, was who was living out these kinds of things. Paul continues on, he says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, who received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So he's saying here is, you know who I was, you know how I lived, even the three weeks or so, wherever that I was there, you know, you became imitators of me, you, you learned it from me, and now you're an example to everyone else. And that, I think, is an important point, is that where you get this from, right, where you get this powerful lifestyle that is just irrefutably from God, is from imitation, right? It's from imitation from people who are currently living that. Um, that's something that has really challenged me, because I'm just like, man, am I somebody who's imitating that? Or, you know, am I somebody even worth imitation in that kind of way. I think that's really challenged my idea of what discipleship is. That discipleship isn't just about teaching somebody some stuff. Discipleship is imitation of lifestyle. And that's what they did with Paul. I've, I've been thinking about that kind of, the ways in which we've kind of been living this out, you know, um, and, and I'm encouraged. I mean, I've the privilege to be, you know, a pastor at Stepping Stone. And, you know, I think that's one thing I see all the time, you know, is our concept of discipleship as not you know, I have to teach you this stuff, but come and do what I'm doing. And we have this program in Stepping Stone called the Apprenticeship Program, which I actually feel like is this, right? And I was talking to, I was talking to Grace at one point about kind of the values of our small group and where do we get that from? You know, and it's interesting because you can kind of trace the lineage of like, oh, well, she, you know, this person learned it from that person, that person learned it from this person, you know. But we have this apprenticeship program where, you know, instead of just learning from a book about how to lead a small group, they just... They follow and they like, you know, they apprentice under the small group leader and they try to lead with them for a semester. And what I find always so important is that like they probably never remember what you say, but they remember what your values are. You know, they remember that if you care about vulnerability and honesty, if you created a space for others to feel loved, they, they, they see that and they imitate that and they want to produce that as well. And they carry it on, they teach the next person and we've seen that happen um, in our church through kind of this apprenticing that we do. 
at Elkridge, I think I've seen this a lot of times. I've seen this in the ways in which, you know, we're gifted with people in our church that have a lot of convictions for a variety of different kinds of things. And one thing that comes to mind is, you know, um, Alice's and Christina's and others' conviction for justice. I think that has shaped our church. And I think a lot of it was just that, you know, um, Alice, Christina, others, you know, it's just sort of like, hey, I'm doing this. I care about this. Do you want to come and do this with me? Do you want to come and care about this with me? That's discipleship, right? <laughs> That's what we're doing. It's this passing on of our values, our lifestyle, you know, as we live with one another, you know, so that we understand, you know, oh, this is what you care about. This is what your aim is. Let me follow and let me pursue that as well. Finally, I want to end with the effect of their witness. Um, it's, I would say that it set an example that echoed through the world. It really set an example that echoed through the world. We see that in this verse in 1 Thessalonians. It says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. How incredible that this dinky little church, this three-week church plant, you know, from Paul, you know, ended up being this, this church that encouraged and that, you know, their witness had re re reverberations, I don't know what the word, echoes, right, throughout the whole Roman Empire. Not only to encourage other Christian believers to, to be stronger witnesses, but also the Romans too, right? They're looking at all this stuff and they're like, like, who are these bunch of like, you know, resolute, crazy, very loving people, you know? You know, and it challenged them, right? It, 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 it clearly, you know, challenged their worldview about what Christianity was. Um, I think there was something so powerful in that. Um, I want to give an example, another example in the world. You know, as I've been studying church history, one of these examples that's been encouraging to me was this example of the Moravian church in the 1600s. During a very dark time, I would say, in church history. During the Reformation, during a period of time when... Catholics were killing Protestants, Protestants were killing Catholics. It was just not a good time. Um, you know, there was this church called the Moravian Church, it's this German church, um, and it was just this, you know, this little church in this little town, and, you know, they're famous for starting a prayer meeting that lasted 100 years, right? They, <laughs> a prayer meeting lasted 100 years, right? They kept praying 100 years for revival, for their, their world, for Europe, for, for what was going around them, they practiced, they were very known, almost kind of shunned by the rest of Europe for their, like, their love, um, for the way in which they loved each other, you know, for the communal in which, way in which they lived. Um, they were known for that. Um, and the results of what happened was, in some ways, people credit them as being maybe the first sparks for the modern missionary movement. It came from these guys who just prayed for a hundred years who practiced this and you know one of them ended up you know being on a boat to America and, and there he met a man named John Wesley uh, who some of you guys may know was the founder of the Methodist movement in America another huge revivalist huge huge person who has a major effect in America you know one of these Moravians was on the boat and you know the boat was just about to sink John Wesley here is panicking for his life and the Moravians just like you know he's just chilling he's <laughs> like God's sovereign like you know I trust God you know, and John Wesley in that moment was like, there's something you have in your faith that I don't have. <laughs> you know, I'm about to go here to be a missionary, but clearly I do not have the same faith that you had. Mm -hmm. And he later on talked to the Moravians and, you know, he spent some time with them and they encouraged them. They actually built up his faith to be this kind of person that he would end up being. So I want to, I think there is an incredible privilege and a burden of being witnesses of God. 
I think the fact that what we do here, I mean, we have no idea in which how it will echo through the world, how it will affect those around us. You know, we have no idea how, and it's incredible privilege and burden that God gives us that joy of being able to be his witnesses. Um, so that's kind of what I wanted to end on. Um, I want to just give you some, some thoughts, perhaps, about how we live this out. Um, so just a few thoughts for us to think applicationally. And whenever I get to this point, you know, I don't, I don't want to speed through this because I actually do want to make sure that we have time to think through, like, okay, you talked about all that stuff. How do I apply it? Like, where do I go from now? And what are perhaps some first steps in which I can kind of move forward, right? And the first question I want to ask for us is, what is our witness? What is your witness to the world, to the people around you? What do they see in your life? And, you know, I know I talked about the First Thessalonians Church being just so great and impacting the whole. You know, I, want, I don't want you guys to just get confused here. I'm not talking about the size of the impact. I'm not talking about how hundreds of people you impact. I'm talking about the depth and the impact. I'm talking about what people see your family your coworkers, just the people around you. You know, what is your witness to those around you? What do they see in your lives? Do they see the Thessalonian endurance and hope? Do they see the Thessalonian labor and love? Do they see the Thessalonian work in faith? Or do they see a person that's just like them in some way? I want to give us two concrete thoughts. It could literally be about anything, but, you know, just two things that came to mind for myself, even, you know, of ways in which my faith can look different in which I can be a better witness to those around me. I think first is how I talk about work, how I grumble and complain about work, right? I think Alice actually mentioned this, I think last week or something when she was talking about, like, there's a fine line between being honest, which is good, and, you know, just, you know, sometimes the work is hard, you just have to share about how hard it is, and also grumbling and complaining, right? And, and where is that line? And I've been thinking about that since then, you know, I think how we talk about our lives, whether we have joy and hope in our lives, especially to non-Christians, I think really will, you know, give a witness to, like, what we're about. Um, and I'm not saying here that we need to be these, like, naive optimists or, like, you know, are you having a great day or, like, an awesome day? <laughs> like, I'm not saying we need to be annoying, right? But I think that I would submit that there's something that a Christian should always have a sense of hope and a sense of joy in them. I'm, you know, I know we go through times of mourning and grieving. I'm not saying we can't struggle. But I'm saying that a non-Christian should see in a Christian's life, okay, you're struggling too, and you're having a bad day too, but there is hope in your life. There's joy in your life that's deeper. And, and, and that's, I think, one of the primary ways in which we witness, right? And the difficulties, they were being persecuted. So we're having difficulties in our daily lives. How we go through that what kind of attitude we have, I think, is so important. I think it speaks volumes to those around us about who we are, what we value. I think the other thing is what we choose to aim toward in our lifestyle. Is it money, career, ambition, building our own kingdom? Or maybe even smaller setting, is it just about getting our things done, getting our to-do list done? Or is it in this radical contentment and joy in what we have? I was just at Costco yesterday. Never go to Costco, especially the Elkridge one, on Saturday is what I learned. <laughs> um, it was so crowded. It was so busy. You know, and as soon as we went there, I immediately started regretting we're going there. You know, it's just people bumping into each other everywhere. The environment just feels stressful. You know, everyone's just trying to get their stuff and get out the, get out the place. And at one point, like, even, like, somebody nicked our car or two, and they just ran off without talking. And I was like, what the heck, dude? You know, <laughs> and, and, you know, in the moment, you know, as I was preparing this sermon, you know, I was just... 
I feel like my natural mindset was just, I hate this place. Let's just get our stuff and get the heck out of here. You know, that's just my mindset, right? Like, we have a mission to do here. Let's not spend more time than we need to here. But I was challenged again by what I was going to have to preach today. You know, even in this instance, you know, everyone around me is just hurrying about. They don't care about anyone else. They're just trying to get their stuff done, even just nicking other people's cars without caring. But how can I be different, perhaps? Okay, it's not fun to be here, you know, but perhaps can I, can I just be happy? <laughs> can, I, can I just be content about my life? You know, can I not be ruled by the things I have to do? You know, perhaps can I even be lookout on somebody else who perhaps needs help? You know, someone who drops something and maybe I can pick that up for them. You know, ways that I can think about how I can be loving and kind as my goal of what I'm trying to do in this time, not just let me just do my to-do list and get out of here. You know, I think that's just a, a small way that I would encourage us to be better witnesses. I mean, person Nick and Carl, like, how can I just love that person and just be like, it's okay, it's fine. You know, like, um, I'm just let it go. You know, there are more important things than just, you know, somebody bump into a car or whatever, right? Like, I'm not saying it's not, I'm just saying, when I look at eternity, I'm just like, I would rather, you know, not, I'd rather just be, I'd rather not let that ruin my day in some ways. Second, I would say, how can we bring others into the things that we are already doing? If we are already living this transformed, this life that is so different from the world, right, then discipleship and evangelism is just simply bringing other people to do the same things that we're doing. It's just showing other people the stuff we're already doing. It's not another program. You don't need to, you know, block out more time in your day. You just need to bring people along to, to do the things you're already doing in your life because the way you're doing it is already going to represent God. So how can we bring others into the things that we are doing? You know, starting to pray or QT, you know, that's one of the things we're, you know, maybe we're thinking about, you know, um, over the summer we decided to do morning prayer. Came about because Jenny was at prayer and she was like, I need a more consistent time to QT. Well, anyone want to join me? <laughs> so she, would, she went to the church office to do that. And then, you know, we started a Discord call. And it was, just, it was just, I'm doing this already. Anyone want to bring about, you know, to come and just to do the things that I'm already doing as well? Um, how can we do it in community together as a team, right? Um, I have a friend, you know, Jinchi, he came a couple times here. But, um, you know, he, he and I have a mutual friend who is my college roommates. And he's just been faithfully kind of just, being a good witness in that person's life. And, and one day he invited me, he's like, hey, your roommate Mike's in town. You don't want to come down and eat dinner with him? And so I was like, sure. So I came down. And then Mike looks at me and he's like, I've been meaning to talk to you for ages. He's like, you know, I'm really interested in the Bible right now. I'm like, what the heck? Like, where, where's this coming from? I was just, I just thought we we're going to be chilling. He's like, can I ask you a question? Can we go through the Bible? Can we talk about it? I'm like, yeah, sure, you know? You know, and so now, you know, we're just, you know, Thursday night, you know, like, I just, you know, just called, and he was, you know, I just took him through a passage, and he's, he's exploring. I don't know where he is, but he's exploring. He's interested. You know, I just, I'm thankful for Jinchi for bringing me along to that, for the teamwork of kind of what that's looked at, for how we can care and just love for our mutual friend, Mike. So how then can we bring others into things that we're already doing, even involving perhaps other church members? And finally, you know, this last thing is where and what is our hope and joy? And I would just, you know, end this on a thought that I think the temptation with doing all this is going to be this performance mentality and this mentality that like, oh, we need to be better, not good enough, we need to bear witnesses. And that's not at all. I want to remind us again of where the power came from from them. The Thessalonian church's strength was anchored in their joy of the good news of the gospel and their sense that Jesus was coming back. It was because they were so transformed by the gospel, so happy about the gospel, 
that they were able to live these lives. And so I want to challenge us again is where and in what is our hope and joy? If we're finding ourselves struggling for motivation to live in this way, perhaps we ought to just go back to the gospel and just to think about how we receive it. Think about a way in which, as Tim Keller says, the gospel says that you know, in the gospel we are more loved, we are welcomed in our sins beyond what we possibly could imagine. Um, and let that be the, the joy and the strength for which we can love other people. Let's pray. God, I just thank you, Lord, for this, this, the Thessalonian church 2,000 years ago, for their faithful efforts to just, to just labor in love, just endure in hope, to just pursue the joy of the gospel every day, even as they were being persecuted. Thank you, God, for that church, and thank you for the way in which their witness has echoed throughout the Roman Empire and echoed throughout history. Even today that we get to read about them, and even today they are encouraging us, and, and we have an example to imitate here. God, I just pray for our church. Um, I pray that you would help us to take our faith uh, more seriously, God. Help us to consider, Lord, what kind of impact we leave in those around us. And God, will we be motivated to live lives that just irrefutably reek, Lord, of your presence and your power? Would you go with us, God, in our workplaces as we hang out with our families, oftentimes very difficult to deal with, as we go to the grocery stores, as we pick up our kids from daycare, as we talk to other moms and fathers and dads, and as we spend time with our coworkers, just in everything, Lord, help us to keep you at the forefront. And help us to remember the calling that we have, the privilege that we have to represent you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.